Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. In a poem called The Beauty of Things, Robinson Jeffers explains that to feel and speak the astonishing beauty of things, earth, stone and water, beast, man and woman, sun, moon and stars, to feel greatly and understand greatly and express greatly the natural beauty is the sole business of poetry. The rest's diversion, those holy or noble sentiments, the intricate ideas, the love, lust, longing, reasons, but not the reason. I have with me today two poets from MSU Press's Wheelbarrow book series, Derek Sheffield and Noah Davis, who both know a thing or two about feeling, understanding, and expressing greatly that natural beauty of which Jeffers speaks. And I'm so excited to share their work with you here on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Selected by Mark Doty for the 2019 Wheelbarrow Books Prize, Derek Sheffield's Not for Luck ushers us into the beauty and grace that comes from giving attention to the interconnections that make up our lives. Through encounters with a herd of deer, a circle of salmon in a mountain creek, and a shiny-eyed wood rat, among other creatures, these poems offer moments of wonder that celebrate our place as one species among many on our only earth. Sheffield is also the author of Through the Second Skin, and he's co-editor of Dear America, Letters of Hope, Habitat, Defiance, and Democracy, poetry editor of Terrain.org, and a professor of English at Wenatchee Valley College. A stunning and visceral debut, Noah Davis's Of This River ushers in a new era of poems from the Allegheny region of Appalachia. In striking stories and scenes, Davis portrays the spiritual cost of deep poverty, the necessity to ask for forgiveness, and the joy in praising the beauty still found in the steep hollows. These poems will cling to you like water on the soles of your boots. Noah Davis grew up in Tipton, Pennsylvania, and writes about the Allegheny Front. His poems and prose have appeared in Best New Poets, Orion Magazine, North American Review, River Teeth Journal, Southwester, and Chautauqua, among others. Noah, Derek, thank you both so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for having us here. Great to be here, Kurt. I wonder if we could start our conversation thinking a little bit about the complexity entailed in that Jeffers piece I read in the introduction, this idea that natural beauty encompasses forms of human and unhuman life and even inorganic matter. I wonder if you could each say a little bit about how you think of yourselves and your poetic projects in relation to the unhuman world and the other creatures that you write about. Well, for me, it it all comes back to water, I think, within my poems. And I think Derek has a similar connection with, with his home river there, the icicle. The, the river that I grew up along uh, in central Pennsylvania is the Little Juniata River, which is a rather small river, I think, by all standards, uh, because of where I am in the mountains. And there, there aren't a lot of huge rivers uh, in those type of mountainous regions in the east. And and so that fascination and that growing up close to that movement, it was difficult to not see how connected we were uh, whenever we would drive up into the game lands above our house to see the reservoir, the Tipton Reservoir, and 
we lived in the village of Tipton. And so right there, we saw that that was our drinking water. And so how could we ever disconnect ourselves from that? And so as I continued to, to grow up and as I became interested in poetry, I think that the language, particularly similes and metaphors, is an amazing way for us to translate that all things are really one thing. One of one thing can always become another thing. And by comparing to unlike things with like or as or without like or as, you know, our, our basic creative writing 101, it shows just that interconnectedness spilling over and over again into other things. And that, and that is what is most fascinating to me. And I think that's why I write so much about the natural world. And I, I don't know if, uh, just like what Jefferson said, there are many other reasons, but they are not the reason. And, and I find that uh, that is the reason for me. That's beautifully said, Noah. And, and as I was listening to you, pairing what I know of you and your work with your words, I was thinking that, and of course, you said it all begins with rivers and stays there. And of course, your book is called Of This River, which has such resonance for you as as a person, as a being, as a poet, I know, um, because we're friends. And, uh, but I was thinking too about something that I really admire about this collection is that it isn't all blooms. It's not all daffodils. It's really kind of a haunting collection, I think. And it's protean in terms of the shape-shifting going on and the voices that we hear from. And there are as many bones in here as there are blooms. And I think that's something pretty special and something that we don't always see in writing. I think that, uh, Kurt, you used the term unhuman, uh, writing about the unhuman world. And your, your term there made me think about all the kinds of ways that we use to try and speak about the natural world in ways that doesn't rely on a dichotomy between human beings and other beings, including plant beings, uh, including the river being, and how we have gotten better I think it may be David Abram who gave us the term, the more than human world. Some people like the other than human world to speak about the kinds of interconnections that we are. We are these interconnections. And to that extent, one of the passages from Thoreau's journals that has lived in me a long time is, he says, do we live inhumanely toward man or beast in thought or act? The least conscious and needless injury inflicted on any creature to an extent, a suicide. What price for life can a murderer have? So to answer your question, I think with respect to my work, uh, I just want to thank you for bringing that beautiful Jeffers quote into the conversation. And I think I would be with Noah in saying, amen. And I, I think especially now more than ever, 
that this is the pinnacle of poetry, I think, is to embody the wildness that, that we are and, and to help us better understand what a human being and how a human being is here as part of the living world. And I think especially now, given the sixth mass extinction, that we're losing other beings every day, that climate change, climate catastrophe, climate crisis is here, is here, and is coming. And it makes me think of another poet like Jeffers I admire so much, Wilfred Owen, who experienced war firsthand, was bloodied by it, and went back to it uh, because of the kinship that he felt for his men with his, with his um, fellow soldiers. And because he knew that the narrative was wrong, that what they had been told about war was utterly, completely, devastatingly wrong. And he came back and, well, I mean, he didn't come back, but, but he, he set the story right. And he said about war and what exactly it is. And he said famously, all a true poet can do today is warn. And I think that's about half of it, that, that we need to be warning. I know Todd Davis, another poet I admire, and I think he, he knows Noah a little bit. I get the sense that he's working on a new book that Michigan State will be publishing that is full of warning and haunting. I've seen a couple of the poems from it. I think the other half of what we need to be doing is opening people up and ourselves always to the wonder of what it is to be part of the great family of things, in Mary Oliver's words. You know, it's interesting, Derek, and I think it, it resonates with something that Noel was said, how quickly we've gotten to this difficult tension between and for me, I think a lot of it has to do with encounter. Like both of your books are very insistent or, or persistent in sort of staging encounters with other creatures, with the built environment, with the natural environment, putting the reader in a place of seeing something they haven't seen before. And that might be to inspire a moment of reverence, as Noah says, like when you sort of see where your drinking water comes from and see that you're part of this interconnected system, or a sort of moment of terror, like in your book, Derek, when we encounter, you know, we're reminded of that horrible image of that Syrian boy who drowned and washed up on the shores of the Mediterranean. There's always in these poems something more complicated than just, you know, the kind of blind reverence for nature that we associate with something written and, and spoken softly over the montage of a Ken Burns film. How do you find that balance between taking the reader along to see something they may not have seen before and, and wanting to disturb them, to take very seriously the, the warning, as you say, about 
what's happening to the environment and also to to encourage them to to want to get to know it in such a way as to care and care for and love it that makes me think about my uh one of my mentors Ross Gay and talking about how such heavy joy uh and happiness comes with the knowledge of such great sorrow and other people have said that before in, in different ways but i i feel like so much of his work that acknowledging to the multitudes that 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 a space can hold in that way those reservoirs that i talked about not in tipton but bellwoods reservoir which is where the that was the little bit smaller town where i went to high school the drinking water in the bellwood reservoir is filled by acid mine drainage streams one of the streams that eventually flows in is bright orange I've just recently moved here to the West, but I, I think uh, my heart and my home and likely my art will always remain in those hollows. And so growing up in the East, particularly uh, here in the Northern Fingers of Appalachia with extraction, there's a Susquehanna River poet, his name's Michael Garrigan, and he has a poem called The Post-Industrial Wilderness. And I believe that that's a perfect description for the places that I live. And so acknowledging the destruction, acknowledging the lingering impacts of this, uh, of the harm that, that our species has wrought on other species, I think is so necessary whenever we go and look uh, at the joy. And I think that Derek does that particularly well. One of the poems that I admire so much is Bedtime Story. And it's a poem that uh, <laughs> brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. I don't even have it open to the page, but that idea of, of balance. In this case, it is with parenting, but I, I, I believe the balance uh, is, is throughout all ways of life and learning how to live through the time. Uh, right now I'm reading, sadly, it's taken, I, I can't believe it's taken me 25 years to finally read it, but um, Martin Martin by Brian Doyle. And whenever Derek uh, was mentioning, uh, he kept on repeating the word beans, uh, Doyle does a lovely thing in this book of saying, human beans and then there are elk beans and there are chickadee beans and there are martin beans and there are elk beans and it is one of the most brilliant books of discussing the interactions of the non-human world the, the more than human world in in completely honest uh, uh ways and all the different individuals that populate a species so i i, I highly recommend that that's a book that's been on my mind recently that I think strikes that wonderful balance. This is a cosmic moment here, Noah, because I'm 10 pages away from the end of Martin Martin. Uh, <laughs> I, I have been, it's same, same for me. I mean, what it, what it was that got me to it was this fall I had read that, his uh, book of essays, the collection of essays, and had just so loved it, so admire it so much. And um, I had read, oh, uh, his other book of fiction, one of his other novels, um, the one with the Raven character. Oh, Mink River. Mink River. I had read Mink River 
And for some reason, I, I don't know, maybe it was the title Martin Martin that didn't, didn't really get me, but man, uh, boy, this is, yes. I mean, he is, this is, yeah, we're, we're in Brian Doyle country for sure when we uncenter ourselves or maybe I should say recenter ourselves and, and use the kind of language that we use to do that. Kurt, I wanna go back to your question was saying, how do you find that balance? And you know, one of the things I guess it sh I sh we should make pretty clear here, and I, I'm guessing this is the same for Noah as it is for me, that these themes, these moments that come up in our poems, these interactions and interrelationships, we're only partially, we only have so much to do with them, really. I think that these poems come into being uh, because, I mean, we write about what we do because they are our concerns as, as human beings. And it speaks to you know, who we are, that we would write these poems. And so when I'm writing a book or writing a bunch of poems that I think might be a book, I don't, I'm not thinking about balance. And I'm also not thinking consciously that I need to write a poem that warns the world about climate change either. Now, there's, it's, it's, it's probably not an either or, there's probably some level of consciousness in this. I mean, I can remember very well 27 years ago being at a writing conference on Flathead Lake in Montana, the Yellow Bay Research Station with Bill McKibben, Patty Ann Rogers, William Kittredge, Janice Ray, and others. And Bill McKibben got up there and he said, please, everybody, all you writers here, use your art to tell the story about climate change. I mean, this was in 1994 and he was calling all hands on deck, even then. He knew, he knew. He's been, this was just a few years after the publication of The End of Nature. And Patty and Rogers leapt up to the podium right after Bill and said, oh, hold on there, Mr. Mr. Minister. Uh, that's not how poetry works. And she has this beautiful term called reciprocal creation that she articulates so well in her book called The Dream of the Marsh Wren a book about craft. And what she's talking about there is something we've known about poetry for a long time as a species that, again, that we are only partially conscious of, uh, we're not really in control. We're not, we don't have the reins, really. You know, the Greeks form, you know, conceived of muses to, to talk about this, uh, this mystery of the process. You might call it God. You might call it subatomic physics, um, the imagination. I don't know what it is, but it is the best freaking drug in the world. It is the best high in the world to feel like you are in touch with that. Whatever that is, man, that's what I want. Mm -hmm. Do you know... Derek, I wonder if if this might be a good place to ask Noah to read the poem Emergency from your book, because I feel like a, a lot of what you're talking about here, the sort of spontaneous nature of, of this kind of writing, the way that it 
seeks to put you in touch with or understand something about being in touch with some other power, other creature. Uh, all of that is pretty present in the poem. So this feels like a, an appropriate moment, perhaps. I would be very happy to read Emergency. I'm a sucker for all different types of roadkill poems. I have great sorrow for roadkill. And we see that all the time throughout our on our roadways, our need to go somewhere fast. We have in the Monkey Wrench Gang, travel is, is only... The, the what is it the uh, evolution of travel is to negate space and we've just continued to try to negate distance and space so often and i think that this poem emergency does such an amazing job with balancing with that i feel like that's a, been a buzzword for us the last few minutes with the stafford poem that derek so efficiently and kindly talks about uh, in, in, in an earlier poem uh, where, where he acknowledges so many people <laughs> dismissing such a poem that has brought so much emotion to so many people. Yes, but so emergency. A doe sets her left front hoof onto the road as I roll to a stop and watch her through the windshield take a second sleek step as another doe appears more slow steps and pause as they turn dark, unblinking eyes toward two cars pulling up behind me. A few seconds is all it takes, the deer going on, nearly there, my foot lifting from the brake. When two others appear in the glint of another car, and I pressed my foot more firmly to the brake, let them be one thing ahead of ours and let us get where we need to watching the silky pistons of their steps my hazard lights pulsing like a cornered heart i hope my reading gave it justice that poem i think it's such an, uh, an efficient use of title I, I feel like poets are on this oscillating cycle of titles are so important and titles are not important. And I feel that the juxtaposition, to use a word like emergency, you're setting it up already. We have this elevated tension. And if we were looking at a minimalist poem, you could end on a doe sets her left front hoof onto the road as I roll to a stop. And that could be the entire poem but the, because Derek is a is a very good poet he decided to push it even further with me I think I would have even ended on on that first and I'm so glad that he did because this is a near roadkill poem this was an emergency that was seemingly avoided there was the emergency of the act the stilling of the moment which and elongating of the moment, which uh, poetry uh, is so deft at doing. And I, and I think this, this poem does such an amazing job talking in conversation with the Stafford poem, because traveling through the dark, we have the, the speaker as being alone there and having to face this alone. But within this poem, uh, an instant community is formed. There are multiple deer 
there are multiple cars behind. And at first we have the worry that the cars behind are going to cause conflict, that they are going to, they're either going to ram into the speaker's car as they stop, or they're going to go around and, and hit the deer. But again, the emergency is avoided that the physical violence does not come, which is such a, which is such a blessing with roadkill and and with the deaths of animals in in spaces where humans human beings witness them we usually only think of them when we see them dead along the road but this is one of the instances which is thankfully more common than not where the animal was not harmed and i think that these last lines here watching the silky pistons of their steps my hazard lights pulsing like a cornered heart we have that melding with the language as I was talking about with that first question uh, with metaphor, the legs of the deer become like the car, the pistons, and the heart of the speaker becomes like the car also, my hazards. And so that, that melding of these worlds, uh, while still excited, still kinetic, is not violent. So Whenever Derek talked about how he didn't think consciously about uh, the balance or not maybe as actively consciously as that. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad that he, he said that because yes, I also don't. But th this is just one of the examples of, I think, how Derek's thinking and being in the world is, uh, is exposed with that. Because Derek talks about, uh, writes about, many heavy things but i think that this poem is one of praise for for the near emergency that that it was you're listening to the msu press podcast i'm here with derek sheffield author of not for luck and noah davis author of of this river i want to pick up on something that you said noah that i think is really really profound about what is happening in this poem and, and you said that this near emergency creates a kind of community out of all of the beings that are involved in it that even metaphorically extends to the car, right? So that there's some something about the, the way the motion of the car is mirrored in the motion of the animals, all of these people who are busily going on about their individual days are all brought to a stop by the action of making way for this set of does to cross the road. It does create a sort of emotional community or, or just a phenomenological community out of all of these beings. And the poem then entails the reader in that experience is I think a, it's a really interesting way of characterizing how all of these things are happening, making little communities of, of shared experience. And it reminds me of something that I think is, is true of both of your collections, but intensely true about, about your collection, Noah, is that these are coming from different regional perspectives. And so you get a different kind of flavor for, you know, what's going on in the world in particular regions and in terms of slightly different experiences and different kinds of understandings of the natural world, you know, based on class and in industry and those kinds of things. I wonder if you could each say a little bit about that role of of regional community or experience in in your particular poetics. I'm so glad you brought that up, Kurt, because I don't think we've really used that phrase uh, poetry of place uh, directly yet. But 
if we go back and think about Robinson Jeffers, uh, the passage that you uh, started our discussion with, certainly that's another way to think about what he's saying is that um, is, is a poetry place, place, what, what is, what is the role of place in poetry and, and vice versa. And I know, and I think I, I think it may be, I think it is felt in my work. It's harder for me to see it simply because I'm in the river. I definitely feel it everywhere in, in Noah's book of this river. I mean, you, you can taste the place on every page. And I think that's really, really special. Not all poetry does this. Some poetry tries to shed place. And that's, that's poetry that I don't really go back to much, uh, I think, because I'm trying to live in my body <laughs> and, and um, continue, continue to make, make use of my senses. And so I don't know. I think, I, I think writing is perhaps at its most fully realized for me when it does engage place the way I see happening and of this river. And I think, as you pointed out in your comments, it's just, it's so complicated and complex and interesting and of this river and how social class, economic class is in there. There are times I almost feel like there are magical realist moments in the book that are just really amazing and something I really admire because you know, I, I really am grateful for Noah's thoughts on the poem of emergency. And, you know, the thing is, is that that just is just what happened. I mean, I don't make a whole lot of things up in my poems. I really don't. And I think it's, I've come to think of it as a kind of a failing, maybe, and I need to make more stuff up. I love the protean nature of Noah's book. And I love how incredibly different it is um, in terms the voices. I mean, we have all these marvelous short-haired girl poems, this whole series uh, that really ties the book together. And I think his, his imaginative prowess is really on display that he can, this, I would say maybe imaginative empathy, or you might use the term radical empathy. Imaginative empathy. I mean, probably all empathy is imaginative, but maybe just throw an extra little flavor of imaginative in there for this kind of empathy. And I will say that, you know, I hope that as we in our culture are trying to honor many different voices, I hope that one of those voices that continues to be given airtime and that we pay some attention to is the voice of rural America. and. Definitely, that's what's coming through loud and clear. That series of short-haired poems, in some sense, kind of remind me a little bit of the series of old friend poems in Joe Wilkins' new book of poetry called Thieve, which is also really fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Derek. And getting so many good, uh, got a whole list going here of, of reading recommendations from you both. I wonder if we could explore this question a little bit further. Derek, you said that that you feel like your writing might or might not be operating with place in the same way. And I, I wonder, like, there's certainly something about placing happening. You know, it happens in emergency. It happens in 
a poem called Still Time, where, where the reader is placed in a situation that, you know, maybe they have been and haven't thought about before, or they're, you know, seeing something that they, that they maybe wouldn't encounter in some place or other. And there's something, you know, there's imaginative empathy there, too. I wanted to ask Noah on the back of this kind of thinking about place and emplacement and, and the notion that the sort of rural American Pennsylvania mountains is a kind of imaginative place in Of This River. How does that characterization gel for you, Noah? Because I think that there is some, like there's something fantastical about the way that it's portrayed, but I feel like it too is is a kind of truth about American experience that's being shared with readers who maybe need that sort of artifice to to realize what they've been overlooking. Well, well, I, I just wanted to say quickly before we transition back to the, of this river for something that, and not for luck, that, that really showed me about the place that Derek is writing from was the acknowledgement and the many poems that were dealing with uh, Native American issues and particularly the racism that is still prevalent obviously with Native Americans, but and then also the, the presence of Native Americans growing up in the East, unless you live near the Oneida Nation in New York or the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina, very sadly, most white Easterners don't know a single Native American or know where they can go and authentically learn about the culture which is happening right now. It's, it's, it's a, a total history book thing. And I think that that's a privilege here in the West that is sadly a reality of the genocide of westward expansion that Eastern tribes were forced West and eventually were forced on, onto reservations here. And, and that's so sad, but I, the, the, the Flathead Reservation is 30 minutes away from me here in, in Missoula. And I have the ability not now with uh, with COVID, but I but I have whenever I've uh, visited here before, where I can actually talk and interact with with Native Americans, and I, I think that Derek's uh, book does a good job of grappling with the the daily uh, racism that happens within the West, but with within of this river and and the mystical aspects. There certainly are some total fantasy aspects in of this river, but I'm a person that believes that if you spend any true time in the natural world, you'd be a fool to not believe in magic, <laughs> some form of magic, some other beyond human comprehension. We're talking about Martin Martin, and I think Ryan Doyle is one of these writers that does a wonderful job of pushing back at the science because all good science always leaves things to question. There's always wiggle room. If you're a good scientist, you know that there is wiggle room and stuff and, and things to explore. And so as I spent time in the, in the woods, I have seen things that I cannot explain. And for me, the, the culture that I grew up in, in, in rural Pennsylvania, how do you grapple with things you don't understand you tell the stories of them and hopefully through the stories through those narratives you can better see and 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 come to terms with them and i find the place where i lived uh 
in, in, in central PA as a deeply magical place in one reason because of the devastation that the wild has had to get through through there uh but and then also the deep history human history that had happened there even before white europeans came and so i hope that the 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 stories and the looking at these hollows on a slant hopefully came through hearing noah talk about sort of the mystical elements of of this river and thinking about you know encountering strangeness in nature and and unexplainable things I wonder if that might not be a good setup for, for your reading, Derek. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, listening to Noah speak about the role, his sense of, the, of place, to use Drew Lanham's term, his home place, makes me, th- I, I think I know what you, you were saying in your question, Kurt, uh, which I feel is true, too, that there is a real place in of this river, that Allegheny front is is the term is something that noah knows from first hand experience and and in fact he has been shaped by it and so that is actual and factual and biographical and palpable but i think i think it's a really interesting notion to think does some of the artifice of the of the book which it sounds like is grounded in some some actual magic too that Noah has experienced, and I, I have no, I'm, I'm sure that, uh, that that's the case. I mean, you get to know these Davises, and things just sort of sparkle around them. But I think, yeah, I mean, it reminded me of sort of uh, Noah talked earlier about the power of a sim, of simile or metaphor, and how that's a bit of artifice. It's something that's not true that tells a deeper truth about that thing right? Like the, that's the Picasso. I tell lies to tell a deeper truth, right? I think that might be a, a little bit what's going on here with uh, Mr. Davis. So it does put me in mind of this uh, little poem, uh, one of the short-haired girl poems from Of This River that I have to say I was fortunate enough to help publish in terrain.org, uh, where it first appeared before the book came out. And I'd like to read it for you now and just say a few things about it. Short-haired girl goes to church. The church at the mouth of the hollow says, we can cut down the mountains because God will come again and make them new. In Sunday school, I ask what we're supposed to do when the mountains are all dust and rubble. The teacher says, God will provide for the faithful. This poem does such marvelous work with its complex simplicity. The form of the poem the way it's lineated on the page, it's three sentences and three stanzas. And the word music in the poem, you can hear it. I, I hope, hope that you were able to hear it. But if you just go down these end sounds, mouth, hollow, down, 
mountains, God. Um, it really opens you up. And it, re- and it reminds me of this passage from Gerard Manley Hopkins' poem, God's Grandeur, when he talks about the ooze of oil. Ooze of oil and the kind of word music that is. It's a, it's a kind of assonance, but not really because it's oor, right? Ooze of oil. And um, you have that same kind of word music happening here, mouth, hollow, down, mountains, God. And then it just continues, new, school, do, and then rubble and faithful. And I'd be interested to hear how conscious Noah was of of the singing going on in this poem there, there are many poems being written these days that don't have much music in them. The, the prose of them, the ideas of them are interesting. The voices are helpful and in some cases urgent. But I think for me, the poems that really turn my crank are the ones that, that sing, that have that lyric, well, the other kind of lyric, right? The lyric aspect to them. And Noah mentioned the term, he, th- he was hoping that his book comes at the place a little slant, and there he might be invoking Emily Dickinson, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Such great advice. Thank you, Emily. And of course, that's the term for the, this word music is a kind of slant rhyme. William Stafford called a s- sort of rhymes, right? is sort of rhyme, but I, and then the other thing that I really admire about this poem is how the understatement at the end is so damning to use that word intentionally in this church poem. The God, the teacher says, God will provide for the faithful. <sighs> and of course you're, and, and um, that, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I think that's the kind of thing I'm trying to do in my poems. And I was thinking about this the other day when I read Kurt Caswell's tribute to Barry Lopez. In it, Kurt shares, and this is on terrain.org, and Kurt shares this thought. He says, in conversation with me and in front of audiences, Barry talked a lot about writing. He instructed me to consider the difference between imposing and proposing. To impose too forcefully is a form of trespass, and a writer who proposes gives the reader room enough to listen. Yes, that poem just drops into our lap. It just, we get to eavesdrop on this little dialogue, and we get to listen. He said, a writer must distinguish between a world of surfaces and a world of dimensions. Computer and cell phone screens are part of the world of surfaces while sandhill cranes rising off an alkaline lake at first light is part of the world of dimensions. The writer's responsibility, he told me, is to come into a companionable relationship with the reader. The writer holds no authority of their own. It's the reader who extends authority to a writer. And once a writer establishes a companionable relationship, he can then lead the reader into unfamiliar territory while shielding and protecting them. 
Once there, the writer must step aside to expose the reader, even urge them forward, and then say, look at this. There's, there's no imposing going on in this poem. It's just this, this little dialogue here, this little lyric, three sentences in three stanzas. And, and then I guess lastly, I would say it is doing really important work that, that um, you know, I, I'm sure that I'm guessing Noah wasn't conscious of this when he was writing the poem, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately and that we, um, we all, we need to do a better job at engaging people of faith in um, the work to save the living world, because there are narratives there that are working against that effort. Thank you, Derek. And I, I, I would also like, because Derek put out there that he helped publish this, Derek also helped make this poem better with a with an edit. I don't know if you remember, but... I forgot. Yeah, no, I no, no. You, you were Did the I one. Really? Yeah, there were two more stanzas in that poem, and you were like, no, I think the poem is here. <laughs> and I was like, Derek, I think you're right. <laughs> uh. I totally, I totally forgot. Oh, no, um, no, no. You know, that's the power of the printed page, man, because actually, I mean, even reading it again, I was like, hold it. I think this is, what's this one of the ones we published in Terrain? Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I'm so glad we were able to share that here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Very cool. I think one thing that we haven't touched on is the extent to which your books and Derek's in particular are concerned with domestic issues in a kind of way or family issues um, that there's issues isn't even the right word necessarily relationships is probably a better one the way in which being a part of a, of a human community is also caught up in those kinds of environmental concerns concerns about place and location and this this is true of your book too Noah there's a lot of struggle together for survival in, in this kind of unrelenting environment, and it shapes the family dynamic in some way. I don't know if that's a way in for thinking about not for luck or... That's, that's actually perfect for, for what I wanted to praise about this. As a person who was a, was a child not too long ago, <laughs> and as a, as a person who wishes to be a father someday. Uh, these poems, they struck me uh, two different parts of my brain. I really admire the tenderness and love and uh, confidence and lack of confidence and seeing the world through his daughters that, that Derek has here in these poems. It's made me think about the way that my parents taught me things, the way that they exposed certain aspects of the world to me and my brother. But it, it also made me think about, well, if, if I am lucky enough to be a father one day, uh, if uh, depending on how far in the future that is, how, how will I approach being a father in this way and I, I i think that to say that these are amazing poems on fatherhood 
we have these cliche ideas of what fatherhood poems are uh, from Father's Day cards that Hallmark puts out. But these are so, these poems are, 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 are very meaningful and deep and heavy and complex uh, and wonderful and brought me to tears several times. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, that's heavy. You know, one thing that I can't remember exactly where I read it. I think it, but but one of you, I think it was Noah, was writing about bringing a a, a poem about a woman hunting to a writing group, yeah, and having it sort of lambasted because women don't do such things as that. And that led me to thinking about my experiences with the natural world. They sort of all start with my old man, who was a hunter and a fisherman, and like for whom it was really important to to pass that on to us kids to get us out of our suburban house and into the woods and onto the lake and et cetera. I I'm, you know, perhaps imposing too much here, but I wonder, you know, I bet I'm willing to bet that that's at least in part true for, you Noah. and I wonder if Derek, if that's part of your approach to fatherhood is trying to inculcate those kinds of experiences uh, in your kids. Yeah. And I think it's that's that's exactly right to to inculcate experiences of of wildness um, to invite them into encounters um, to fa- to facilitate that to nurture that for sure. I have to say that for me, and I'm really moved to hear Noah who um, I hope I really hope gets to be a father himself because it's it's simply it's the best thing you'll ever be called and I think for me that poetry here is very much involved in my sense of what it is to be a father and having a hero like William Stafford, who, you know, there are sort of these other writers that we admire and read who have no interest at all in domesticity or having a family or, or anything like that. And I remember being about Noah's age and, and thinking, and, and then reading about William Stafford's life and how the kids his children could come anytime into his office and, and he would immediately turn to them. There was no time that they couldn't interrupt him in his study, which was this little room that it was the garage that they had uh, converted part of the garage just outside the door uh, off the kitchen. And I thought, that's, that's what I want. I want it all. You know, why deny yourself? Why let some kind of aspiration that you have in your art keep you from living what for many of us, maybe not for all of us, but for many of us might be a full, full life, a fully actualized life. And for me, that was, you know, when I was younger, I couldn't imagine, I I never really never thought about myself as a father. I never thought about myself married or anything. I just didn't think much about the future. 
I was, <laughs> I was too busy figuring out, you know, my present and working on, you know, I was in that veil of soul making. I was just that Blake writes about. I was, I was, um, I was being worked on and I was working on myself and it, and it, I had to get to that place where I was like, okay, yeah, I think I, yes, I think this is it. This is, this is my path. And it's, and so I feel that the, the poems and not for luck really, uh, so many of them are just about witness, just being witness to the, as Noah's book might be witness to the magic, the real magic of the place of the Allegheny front as he knows it. And as he brings to his readers awareness through, through some artifice and some powerful language and, and some haunting poems. My gosh, haunting. I mean, these things will haunt you in a good way. The way I think it was Dickinson also who said that art is a house that tries to be haunted. Now, this is a book of art, but I think for me, my poems are a witness to place and the interrelationships, the interrelated world of wildness as much as they are wit and and for me part of that wildness is watching these daughters grow up in and out of my arms yeah you know i think that ending on this offer you know proposing that readers come and witness what's going on in each of these books of this river and not for luck is a really good place to leave it and i just can't thank the two of you enough for sharing some time with me today for the for the books and for this conversation it's been truly delightful uh, and edifying and i can't wait to share it with others thank you so much for having us i really appreciate it thank you derek thank you kurt thank you noah um let's do it again sometime <laughs> i'd be happy to of this river and not for luck are both available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers you can find Derek on Facebook and at DerekSheffield.com. Noah is on Instagram at n.davis21. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milne. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwa, Adawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.